Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Devereaux Milburn, a filmmaker who's made several shorts and directed music videos for Roseanne Cash and Garland Jeffries, among others. His first feature, Honeydew, starring Sawyer Spielberg and Malin Barr as a couple who make the mistake of camping in the wrong corner of the American heartland, premieres on VOD platforms today. It's rooted in a couple of key horror touchstones that I'm sure you'll recognize, but ultimately it does its own thing, and you should check it out. Devereaux picked Punch Drunk Love, the 2002 movie where Paul Thomas Anderson changed the way we see Adam Sandler, channeling the actor's flailing, furious persona into something tragic, menacing, and genuinely scary. Anderson cast Sandler as Barry Egan, an anxious, alienated entrepreneur who meets the love of his life, Emily Watson's Lena, a work friend of one of his sisters, just as everything else in his world goes to hell. There's other stuff happening, involving a harmonium, pudding cups, phone sex lines, a car crash, and a mattress store in Provo, Utah, but none of that really matters. We're watching a love story. This is someone else's movie. I can never remember if I saw it in theaters for some reason. It's something you'd think you'd remember. Seeing, I think I either saw it in an art house, um, or I, or I just uh, sort of came across it while I was, you know, a burgeoning uh, filmmaker and film lover, uh, in in like early high school, like probably I think it was was freshman or yeah freshman year, um, and uh, I just remember I'd never seen any at that point. I hadn't seen an American film like that. Uh, with so much beneath the surface, but also with this crazy energy that didn't really, um, didn't overwhelm and didn't really, uh, it wasn't overly high octane, but still had this punch, um, uh, pardon the pun, uh, that real, that, that I just couldn't feel, I couldn't figure out how he accomplished that, uh, the effect that, that had on me um and uh and i was just captivated i was i think that was actually i want to say that was the first pta movie i saw i think i saw it before boogie nights and definitely before heart eight um and uh and then it just got it i became a huge pta addict in it and um and just i don't know that the, the obviously growing up on Adam Sandler and seeing that performance, I think for everyone for the first time, obviously it, it, it uh, um, changed Robert Ebert's mind about him and a number of other critics and, uh, and directors. And, um, and I just, I was just so sort of bowled over. Uh, and I related to the character of Barry Egan really strongly right off the bat. And I think a lot of people do um, in that, you know, that uh, extreme, you know, debilitating anxiety and and insecurity and self-loathing and fear of uh, fear of people and and fear of the world and and then the triumph of of uh, having a love in his life, as he puts it, and um, and realizing his powers. Uh, it's, you know, and obviously a lot of people have sort of paralleled it with Superman and I don't know that, um, whether or not that was entirely deliberate, I'm sure he's spoken on it, but, uh, but there's definitely that, that theme of, you know, sort of 
having your strengths and weaknesses and finding how to sort of push the button on, on either. Yeah. I saw it, um, early in the morning. It was one of those 10 AM screenings in a midtown megaplex. And we had already, you know, Toronto critics gave Magnolia best picture in 99. We were huge fans of his, um, I, I'm still iffy on heart eight. I still feel like it's just too dense for what it's mm. trying to do. I think it just, his, the lightness of his cinematic touch hadn't evolved sure. yet the way it does in sure. Boogie Nights where he's just sort of playing with form and entertaining sure. himself and us at the same time. And all we knew about this was, this is the Adam Sandler movie. Like right. it just, it was this huge question mark because he was right. still new enough as a filmmaker that this could be a wild swing that doesn't work. Like sure. now, if you cast a, a completely un, unlikely person in a movie, I'm going to think, yeah, okay, let's see what he does. But then right. it was, really, Adam Sandler? And the trailer was kind of incomprehensibly artful. Right, I, right. It's beautiful, but it, and, and, you know, once you see the film, it makes perfect sense. But until then, it's just this strange mystery object. Yeah. And I just remember leaving the theater in tears. It just, yeah. just shattered by it. It's so good. Yeah. And it's the first and only time I've sat through a Paul Thomas Anderson film initially at least in a state of fear and just just <laughs> afraid of the movie because of what was going because of the volatility of it because of the way he uses sure. sound and when Barry punches through the glass and shatters the mm. door and it's just it's such an interesting way to handle something like that because mm. watching it a second or third time you don't really you don't see it you just hear it it sort of reverberates through the speakers in a way that's assaultive mm. and it was just an incredibly queasy, intense experience that first time through until the release. Yeah. And then you just like, you let everything go. Um, right. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever had that experience in a movie before or since. Yeah, no, I totally relate to that. Uh, and I, I saw, I mean, I, again, I think I was probably 13 when it I came out. I would have been 35. You were there. Okay. So I was, I was a bit younger, but I was 13 or maybe 14. Um, and so, again, like I said, I was still developing a, my taste and, um, and what meant what and, and how to accomplish things. And there's still, there's obviously still an element of like not analyzing um, uh, every shot and every, sure, sure. every moment and every piece of blocking and, um, and seeing it, and seeing it for the first time, like I said, I just started, I think that year, my freshman year, going to, uh, my mom's a professor and she had a student who was a big um, film geek who would always go there to these screenings. I grew up in Syracuse. There'd be screenings at uh, Syracuse University. And um, and I was, I would, when I was first introduced to like French and Italian cinema and had become a, a huge fan of like Bertolucci and Fellini and um and uh Jacques Demy it was the first time I'd seen Ambrose de Cherbourg and mm. um I don't think I'd seen any Jacques Tati yet uh and I didn't realize that there was any influence there until later and he didn't draw any lines but uh I hadn't seen it again I, like I said I hadn't seen an American film that had that uh that level of emotion and and that type of frustration and inner turmoil, I hadn't seen that represented in American cinema. Uh, not that it hadn't been, but I just hadn't seen it and hadn't, I hadn't had access to it on, 
in that way. Um, and I also, you know, like I said, I grew up on Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I think the film he did before it was Little Nicky. Um, and that was sort of the lead up to the film was like, <laughs> you know, what's this going to be? And these two seemingly disparate people working together. And, um, and yeah, I, I remember having uh, somewhat of a similar experience by the end of it of, of not having, haven't had, I don't think by that point, had really my first big love maybe, but I'd had my first, I was in my first real sort of longer term relationship. And, uh, and the, the seriousness and maturity of it in real life is far, far away from what it was on the, in this film. But um, I, I just remember those, those, those uh, color cards um oh the, the scopatones yeah the scopatones yeah and uh and just being sort of agog at that and that you could do that um and that it, it reminded me of uh godard and and a lot of those uh new french new wave uh directors and what they sort of deigned to do outside of of what you know what might sell or what might make the most sense narratively um and also the score and the, the Jean Brion score uh, was is still probably up my you know, like top three, top five scores, and uh, and definitely and had a, a a lot of influence in in the score for for my film and a lot of the stuff I've done and uh, and the way it sort of builds tension and and it can become frantic, but again not sort of not sort of blowing you over with its, uh, with its sense of itself. You know, it's, it's, I, I'd never heard anything before since that, you know, you were sort of allowed to do, or that really mixed with the, the protagonist so well, and even seemed like it was, you know, it was like the Peter Pan shadow on his heels. It like, it sort of, it, it mapped out every feeling he had in such a effective way. There isn't anything that, Magnolia comes close, I guess, with the expressionism and the way that he uses heightened reality to tell the story. Yeah. But that's a giant canvas with a lot of mixed emotional tones running and clashing into each other. Punch Drunk Love is really, we're trapped inside Barry's head for the whole thing. And it's right. just, yeah, it's like being smothered in anxiety. Um, yeah. You know, people, people were talking about it they brought it up a lot when uncut gems was first making the cycle because um mm. like on the festival circuit it was like oh it's like not since punch drunk love and it's like yeah but uncut gems lets you enjoy the agitation like it's about right. the ride <laughs> this thrill, is yeah. yeah this is about empathy this is about feeling for this guy sure. and just how horrible it is to be barry right and again like that's something i didn't expect from either anderson or sandler and and mm. you know Having watched him for a decade, not phone it in exactly. He hadn't reached that point yet for the comedies, but but play a very similar type for the whole thing of his of his leading man arc. You know, like he yeah. was doing stuff like The Water Boy and and movies where really no, very little was being asked of him uh, yeah. other than to shout and sometimes with an accent. <laughs> and, and he's good at it. It's yeah. his thing, but. To see, like, to see a movie understand what's so unsettling about that persona and find it and mm. pull it to the surface, it's just, it's remarkable. I, I 
can't think of another movie that has done that much for an actor in one film. Like to say, no, no, this is how you should see him all the time. Right, and right. just pivot him just enough so that it's like holding a gem to the light. You can sort of see a different facet of it only yeah. if the light is exactly right. And only if you're holding it and looking at it in the right moment, this is that thing where he just cracks the whole persona open and finds, <laughs> finds the horrible, sad man inside. Right. No. Yeah. It's, it was, it was like the perfect sort of storm of, of, uh, of, concept and script and actor and director and uh and um and not, i mean not to not for not to forget emily watson but uh because they're there's just so um, such an unlikely couple <laughs> as actors as people and then they become such a for some reason such a, a likely couple by the end of the film but um the way he plays off of people who are comfortable uh with themselves and with the world, it was so endearing because up until the point where they have their first date, he really plays that. I mean, you could, I mean, and he's someone who does go over the top. He's known for going over the top and, and speaking in a funny voice and, uh, and, uh, and for, and for, you know, using physical humor and sort of um, more of a broad way. Uh, and you would expect that even if he was trying to do what he winds up doing with Barry Egan, that he wouldn't have, he would have, it would have seemed affected or, um, or, or very deliberate and, and hard to watch. Um, but he, he has this sort of inherent vulnerability and, um, and the way he reacts to the world around him, it did seem, like I said, it did seem inherent. It's, it seemed like every reaction he had to the people who worked um, uh, were working in the in the warehouse, from the 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 four brothers to the uh, the uh, the girl and the the woman on the other end of the phone who sort of entraps him to. Um, uh, to his, especially his sisters, when he's, you sort of see this very different person uh, when he's put in front of each, each supporting, uh, each supporting character. And it's so fun to watch the subtlety of how he reacts, you know, of how he reacts to his, that, that scene when his sister sort of storms in, sprints in with uh, Lena um, while he's sort of trying to get his, thought straight and has just been assaulted by this woman on the phone. Um, and there's all this chaos going on at work and you just feel for him so deeply, even though nothing, obviously the fact that these people are threatening him is a huge deal, but you, it, you know, no one's got a gun to his head. It's not like a, it's not an action film and there's no, there, there hasn't yet been a, um, an intense chase scene. Uh, but it's the most intense scene in the, in the, in the best example of building tension, um, and anxiety that I think I've ever seen, you know, from the, from the time that she sort of storms into the time that the, the forklift crashes and, um, and Lena winds up sort of asking him out, uh, and he's sort of, and he suddenly finds peace again in this, at the, at the end of it, um, it's just so fun just to just to sort of watch him navigate those uh, his interpretations of what's right in front of them. 
Yeah. And it, it's, as you say, it's like a great pressure valve that just never releases. You just sit there steeping in it. Yeah. But, but so it just like, I knew who Emily Watson was because I'd seen Breaking the Waves, another yeah. like, incredibly powerful, Amazing, intimate yeah. story of someone destroying themselves for, for love. Yeah. Uh, and so also the reason I suspected this film wouldn't have a happy ending just because, right. you know, I'm in there going, oh, what? I know why he cast her. She's going to right, be sad. Right. Exactly. And, and that's not what happens at all. So yeah. did, you hadn't seen anything like she would have been completely new to you. Um, I think I'd seen her. Was it Metroland with Christian Bale? Did that I think that came before. I don't know if. Um, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that was that, and maybe Angela's Ashes. Though that might have. I think that came. I think that was like ninety nine. Oh, that's right. It was ninety nine. Um, I think I'd seen those two films with her in Metroland. I didn't even know who directed it. I don't know if it was Frears or. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna look that up right now because I I'm dying to remember. But I think like I'm yeah. not sure that's the right title. Uh, and she yeah, went to Gosford Park, of course. In Gosford Park, yeah, I'd seen and I had seen Gosford Park. Um, Metroland, that, yeah. It was in Metroland. Metroland. Um, uh, Philip Savile, Philip based Savile, on the Julian okay. Barnes novel. I had completely forgotten that movie existed. Yeah, I remember I'd seen it. I, you, a big part of the reason I got into making films is because my dad. Um, I mean, both my parents introduced me to a lot of sort of current foreign cinema and indie art house stuff that when you're younger, you just don't have really any context, you know, to know, to see it. Um, and that was one of those that I'd remember seeing and being sort of uh, in awe of the, the sexuality of it more than anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and not knowing much about, uh, you know, uh, the struggles of a, of a marriage and having children and, um, but I remember being sort of in a, in a way at that age, both uh, impressed and also sort of creeped out by her just because she was so smooth. And I remember thinking like um, just getting sort of lost in her eyes and then seeing her in this. And this, you know, like I said, it was probably the second film, maybe the third film I'd seen her in. Um, yeah. If I, if she was in Gosford Park before, um, but she was featured very prominently and had blonde hair and seemed like a very different, obviously different than I'd ever seen her. Mm -hmm. um, and just has this sort of, again, it's like these two people who really are able to not only use their, their face and physicality to, to um, produce it an incredibly uh, compelling moment and, and, are really incredible with dialogue and with, you know, the scenes where they're getting to know each other. It's just like the most organic, um, organic sort of version of that. Uh, and, and I, I did not, you know, again, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, I wouldn't have expected him to cast I, a lot of his casting choices. You know, you don't, don't really, um, typically sort of come out of nowhere. Um, and that and he, for some reason, is always able to to steer them in the right direction, which is probably because he uses such incredible actors. But um, but yeah, the, just that that uh, in the the scene when they they get in the car wreck, and then he goes to the hospital and has to leave. Um, 
and she gets upset with him there's just the sort of the arc of the of their the ups and downs of their sort of trajectory as a as a couple um isn't you know you don't get beaten over the head with it it's very sort of passive um and uh, i don't know if ethereal is the right word but um i think that applies yeah yeah there's something sort of that touches you without you realizing it uh and you can't figure out why they're good for each other but you know you know especially by the time he gets to hawaii you know that they are and you you desperately want him not to mess it up yeah yeah it's it's um it's the kind of thing where how can i put this without sounding utterly sappy it's a celebration of feeling like real emotional feeling, but it has to start from such a heightened place that the the romance and the the credible human scale emotion has to sneak in that way. Uh, yeah. They're they're both established as feeling more than the average person feels. You know, like Lena is is a huge romantic and and instantly knows that they're meant to be together. Barry yeah. is more recessive because of the anger and the rage keeping him away from people. And there's always this. You know, I think 20 years later, it's it's weirdly prescient about the whole incel thing. Like, there's a sense yeah. here that he's cut himself off from people voluntarily, but blames the world. Sure. Yeah. And she sees through him. And it is this weird fantasy of the good woman that can redeem the angry man. Right. But because Anderson keeps us inside Barry's head, it doesn't feel like the, it doesn't feel weird to rewatch it those themes feel they're still sympathetic and like the whole ultimately the whole movie is about salvation and and deciding to be a better person so Mm -hmm. it plays into a a redemptive version of that sort of thing but i was really surprised on rewatch just to see just how unpleasant barry might appear from the outside and how neither anderson nor sandler is afraid to show that like that's that's the the thing that really amazed me this time is that there is no vanity in either of them like the movie the, the film itself is too close to barry right and sandler is giving exactly that there's just he's he is disturbing to look at for yeah. roughly half the film yeah yeah no it's and it's funny when you think about that it, i mean it is sort of non-stop uh anguish yeah. on some level i mean it is varying degrees uh, as with anything, but you think about that on the page, and I've read the script a couple times just to as a um, so at some points as a roadmap for other stuff I've written, mm-hmm. uh, especially stuff that's shorter and has a bit more of a basic sure. premise. Yeah, that's more character driven and more more uh, internal, um, and it's just very easy to make that too unappealing and too. Uh, abrasive especially when and there was a one point while i was in the times i've read it there's time been plenty of times where i've when i'm writing i'll i'll um i'll sort of jot down the beats of whatever film i'm i'm sort of analyzing or picking apart and try to figure out you know how i can accomplish that without sort of directly imitating it Mm -hmm. um and a lot of times it's it's uh it's the second act that i get you know the most stuck inside of at the end of the second act and it going through the roller coaster of his experience um 
and watching it at the same time. There's times I just read it and without watching it. There's times I've I've, wa- I've read it in tandem with while playing uh, while playing the film. Mm-hmm. And there's just like there's six. I think there's six times where he acts out in anger. Maybe five where he acts out violently. Typically towards a wall or himself or, or the glass sliding doors or um, you know, uh, when he destroys the bathroom. Um, and when you look at that, when you look at those, those that many times, someone who's so seemingly introverted does that, it could seem like overkill and it could seem like this guy's just crazy. Like he's just un- unstable. And there's, and there's also the, the moment in Hawaii when they're in bed together and he's saying, I want to smash your face in with a sledgehammer. And, and, uh, and I think I remember seeing that in one of the trailers. I don't know if it was a, it might've been a theatrical trailer that seen online or something, but um, there's, it's so easy to make that like too much for people. Uh, and obviously there's, there's, are those who be able to understand uh, what it means and, and how well it works. But I think that the fact that it was received has been over time received as well as it has been um, uh, is a testament to, to how it was directed and how Sandler not only performed it, but how the whole thing was sort of, sort of played out as it, even in shot design and in, in the way that it's uh, in the, the editing of it, which I still, I still return to it all the time for it's the, the, the uh the camera and the and the cutting it's just like there's something about the flow of it and the energy of it and the fact that it's always we always seem to be running through this very quiet world um i i i just can't uh i always am sort of unable to put my finger on what exactly it is and that's again for pta that's often the case there always seems to be some sort of hand holding the film together and a presence uh, that's not at all distracting, but that you can't really compare to many other directors today. I think it's just the confidence of, of tone, yeah. like the sense that the film knows where it's going, even if I have no idea. Sure. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of movies where the film has no idea where it's going and I know it's not going to get there. And, the, the high wire act that he puts into his, into his films, into this, into there will be blood, into inherent vice. Um, well, I, I guess Mag- Magnolia too, really. I mean, they're yeah. all just, they're all just incredibly self-assured dares like yeah. to, to themselves. They're all, all, they're all higher, high wire. They're just like every, almost every single one of them. I mean, you could argue that, um, maybe Boogie Nights a bit less so because it's it's there's so so much sex involved that there's there's sort of an outlet for for anyone to even oh, if yeah. they're not uh if they're not interested in the artistic elements or in the in the uh cinematic sort of experience that you can sort of anyone can access it in a way or or get get um get into it and i i guess same with there will be blood there's it's because it's a period and because there's sort of a, there's sort of a grease all over the, 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 uh, the protagonist and all over the entire film as a whole, it's sort of, it, 
it's it, you're you're expecting on some level for the tone to be dark and and sort of um and sort of terrifying but uh but yeah every the inherent vice jumps out just because i it's one of the films of his include the master as well that i saw the first time i saw it i didn't much like it and then i saw it a second time i liked it a bit more and i saw it and then after the third time i've seen it more times than i can count same with the master and they're just now they're my you know a couple of my favorite films that i just again return to over and over again and and to really see what you what you can do or what you're allowed to do with with something that could otherwise be boring or could otherwise be too much um or uh, how aggressive can you be does there is there a limit uh, and if there's not how do you accomplish it through either through direction or writing or um or any type of development that uh that makes it so it, it has some sort of um, control and effect. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 those master, and I do see a lot of punch drunk in the master, just in the self-loathing um, uh, of Joaquin's character, uh, especially in that when they get locked up and he's, you know, banging his head up yeah. against the, the bunk. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, it strikes me that, Punch Drunk Love is different from all of his other movies because I don't know. I was going to say it, it's over. It ends before it can fully realize itself. But of course, the whole point of it is that as soon as it ends, everything's different, and we don't need to be there anymore because mm-hmm. that's the whole point. They'll, they'll be fine. But sure. the it's also chasing a really specific emotional thing that none of his other films is really engaged with, which is what it is to be in love, what it is to find someone who gets you, and you know that gets us to the sledgehammer scene where he can use the most horrific language, but it's somehow purged of negative association. It sounds, Mm -hmm. it's because he's, like Sandler is delivering it in this lovelorn, besotted voice, and she's accepting it because it's, it's like a truth from him that she can internalize that like the way Lena sees Barry is so strange for any of Anderson's characters because I'm I'm racking my brain to think of another character in any of his movies who sees as clearly as Lena does, Mm -hmm. who, who is there to receive potential and to, to reflect it back Mm -hmm. at, at the person at, um, in Barry's case, like he, she saves him because she shows him he can be saved, Mm -hmm. which is a sacrifice sort of, except it isn't because she genuinely loves him and she just needs for him to love her back. Right. And so it's this weird, like, in terms of, uh, I remember in 2002, a couple of people were not complaining exactly, but they were vaguely put off by the idea that she's only there to validate Barry's existence, which is true. Like, structurally, that is her, her function in the script. But I think casting Watson makes that work. Like, it makes her a person who... It's not that she sees Barry as a project. It's that she wants him. And so she makes him worthy of her. If we saw it from her perspective, it would be this really weird romantic comedy about a, a, a young woman chasing an unworthy man. But because we're introduced to her through Barry, it works. I, I, yeah. I still don't fully understand it. And it seems like such a huge dare for him to, to pull off, to make it work. And maybe that was his whole way in. Like, what is it? Yeah. How do you make 
a romance work when the guy is Adam Sandler. Like that, right. the, take that persona and, and put it into the real world and see what happens. Right. And the only way that can work is to show him as he is perceived by, by Alina. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. such an incredible performance on her part. Yeah, no, it really is. She's the perfect mediator um, for the audience. And she does, she is unflinching. There's not, and a lot of those films where you have someone who's either in, I think Barry's incredibly likable and relatable, but there are plenty of films where, you know, there are the care, the protagonist might not be um, as, relatable or as vulnerable or not likable at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's not, um, there's not someone to sort of, or the person, the love interest or whoever's, whoever the counterpart winds up being um, is, uh, is uncertain for a long time before they become certain. And she starts off certain. Right. Um, the minute she drops her car off or the minute she sees him in the picture with his sisters. Uh, and that, and that is something that's funny you saying that. I mean, I don't think I ever picked up on the fact, uh, probably until very recently, um, that she was, you know, more or less in love with him, uh, from, the get-go yeah. uh, and that that in many ways allows us to relax and, and sort of anything that he does. And we all have that experience. We have people, family and friends who may embarrass us uh, or who we worry about in real life um, uh, because the people in the world, the strangers and the people we come across don't have the context to know that, what they're doing isn't aggressive or what they're doing isn't dangerous or what they're doing isn't uh, meant to be offensive. And no matter how he acts, even when he destroys the bathroom and they ask him to leave, <laughs> they walk, it's the, it's the most fluid, you know, they're having this really light conversation and she, and she pulls that, that trigger gets pulled about the hammer incident. And, um, and, he goes into the bathroom and then everything after that is, is, is just very, it, he, they leave that, uh, the restaurant in that, in that, that one shot. And there's no, there's a minor confusion on her part. And then they get outside and there's just this sort of happiness to be with them. Um, and she understands that clearly something happened, you know, <laughs> it's like, but, the uh, the manager or the major D whoever asked them to leave it's not you know it's not for any other reason than he's done something uh, offensive um, so yeah and I yeah it's funny I, I I rarely look at it from the perspective of Lena um, but I think that's also a, a a credit to her a credit to Emily Watson uh, it's just the simplicity of her. Her character, but also the how she, how she, sort of gets, you know, uh, slides into that that uniform, so to speak. Yeah, and it also makes it possible. I mean, it makes it possible for Barry to be the hero in the end right. too, when he goes up against the mattress man. Which is yeah. okay. I knew it was Hoffman the minute I heard his voice, of course, because it's a <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It's going to be in two thousand two. You're going to have that sure. guy be that that character, but we finally are given someone who is 
without a doubt worse than Barry just who right. has not got his issues under control, who doesn't even know what they are, who just needs to strut and thrust and be as obnoxious as possible. And again, I first time through, I thought he'd kill him. I thought there was going to be actual violence because you're braced for it because this movie has not let any of the tension out. And you thought Barry would kill mattress. Man. I thought there yeah. was an excellent chance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. I just, I know he had a name, but he's mattress man to me. Right. Yeah. No, me too. <laughs> and, uh, what was it? I want to call him Freddy, but that's from Town Townsend. I, I can't even, yeah, I can't remember what his name is. Yeah. Dean Trumbell, which is Dean, a great, right. great name too. But, um, name? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I thought that it was going, like that would be where this was going because so many of, of um, Anderson's, like all three of his films built to violence in one way or another mm. before this. Mm-hmm. And then to realize that that's, like it's about having met Lena and knowing that he doesn't have to, that's what reduced me to tears. It wasn't like, it wasn't the clinch. It was the fact that you're watching someone decide to be a better person because he's fallen in love yeah. because he understands himself in a way that he didn't before. And that in a really roundabout way brought me back to some of my own personal weirdness. Um, not that I was violent or, or awful or anything, but it's just like when you do find the bright person who understands you, you see yourself differently and you want to be mm. that person all the time. Yeah, And um, I think, if I remember correctly, I had met the woman I would marry, like, uh, that year anyway, within six or seven months of seeing oh, wow. before I saw this <laughs> film. And so I was in there. I was like... So we can, we can credit your, your, your marital status with uh, Punch Drunk Love. <laughs> I think it clarified a few things for me in a way I wasn't expecting, yeah. but, I, but I don't know that I'd ever seen that articulation of my emotional state in a movie before. Mm. I mean, there are yeah. lots of movies about people who are transformed by romance yeah but this one is working on such a primal like subconscious not even subconscious but a subliminal level about the emotions that are going back and forth no one ever expresses anything it's never articulated it's just so clearly there yeah and so yeah it just destroyed me but in a good way it was destroyed me in a way that let me rebuild yeah no that that makes a lot of sense and yeah like i've said you know, being young the first time I ever saw it, even being as young as I was or as uh, inexperienced in matters of love and pretty much everything else, uh, that line he delivers once he gets to the, um, once he, he confronts Mattress Man, uh, it just is impossible not to be floored by and to not, not to have some chamber in your brain open up a bit about what love can mean um, and to have some expectations too and excitement about what love can mean. Um, you know, the idea that it can give you a power, it can make you feel strong. Um, I think the only other, it might be unrelated, but the only other line that's done that for me is in Sexy Beast when he he's on the phone with his wife after he goes back to, um, after he has to do the, the caper or whatever and, mm-hmm. uh, and he and he says uh, something to the effect of "You make me strong." So and he asks her to say his name so that he can feel strong. And that and that line, whatever it is, that is unbutchered by me. Um, and the and the line about having a love in his life that makes him feel powerful and that uh, essentially makes him unbreakable. It just really it is the the banger at the at the end. Um, and then it, him. I, again, like, I don't know if this was deliberate or not, 
but it was it was I think my friend um, brought it up to me at one point that when she hugs him from behind at the end, it's sort of like Superman's cape. Um, and uh, yeah, and again, it's very it's entirely possible that that was not not what he was going for visually, but it it's sort of a, a sweet sort of sliding into when he, he comes back to her apartment and they have this very brief, he gets this sort of scolding um, about having left and he doesn't bring up what he did or why he did it. Or, you know, he's just sort of, he did what he had to do and he's, and, and there's this sort of this ease and, and, um, and sense of relief Uh once they're they're officially together and mattress man is is beaten back yeah yeah it is a supervillain defeat when you think about it yeah yeah it's, and I, again like it, there, i'm sure there's plenty of films i know you know uh that that you could uh get all um conspiratorial about but uh but yeah I, I, there are definitely some themes there yeah oh, and i think also the fact that he chooses to score it with um with a song from Popeye, you know, with a, with a song from a cartoon or a comic right. book, rather, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a live-action comic book character. That's yeah. definitely creating a, an aesthetic that lends itself to this interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, there is. And there is, color-wise, there's definitely sort of a, oh, yeah. a cartoon or comic book effect um, that you don't, that, again, you don't, wouldn't notice unless you sort of, it was, it, it, you watched it enough times, but yeah. Yeah, well, Barry's suit is in a way a uniform. I mean, he only sure. ever wears that one suit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe he has five of them, but it's right. still you know, like it's a deliberate choice to put him in those clothes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's just it is. I would say it is among probably the top five films that I return to over and over again. Um, especially, like I said, when I'm working on, when I'm working on a script or when I'm conceptualizing, or, uh, it, there's always, I, if I hit a roadblock or if I, if there's any sort of, um, I'm held up in any way, uh, there's something about it that I can feed off of. Um, and a lot of times I don't, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll think, well, how did he do that? How do you get from there to there? Uh, and get away with it and I'll watch it. And sometimes I'll be like, Oh, maybe that, maybe it's because of this one thing or that. I mean, there's so many subtle little moments. Um, and sometimes I'll find something and other times I'll just be like, it's just magic. It's part of the, part of the moment. There is that this happens a couple of times, I think, but there's when she first mentions again, before he goes to the bathroom and destroys it, when she first mentions the hammer incident, he does that sort of, um, there's sort of a beat and then he does this sort of flick with his hand that she doesn't even notice because her eyes are down and it just, it's sort of startling, but it shows you the power of the moment even more than it did when he decided to smash those sliding glass doors. There's just this, this surge of, of uh, anger and fear that's sort of always waiting to physicalize. Yeah. It's just, it's sheer force of will, I think, on Anderson's part to to sell this. Like he knew how to do it, and he did it. I, I don't right. even know that he knows, right? Exactly, but that intuitive thing. I mean, I loved Magnolia, but 
seeing this was like, oh no, he's a genius. Like he's a legitimate genius. I don't know that he could explain how he did anything in this movie, but it works and it doesn't need explaining. I am also a huge fan of Magnolia. And again, that's another example of like seeing something when I was pretty young and realizing like you could do things that I didn't know you could do or were allowed to do or possible to do or tell a story in such a way. Um, And obviously I'd seen it with Altman, but, uh, but the frog scene for me in Magnolia, I think sold me on, on, uh, on PTA more than, more than anything else. And then punch Trump was just like the cherry on top for me. And I, especially as a, as a young person who's very much thinking only of himself, um, there's something so singular about it that allows you to sort of bask in that, um, that his other films don't necessarily, even though a lot of them are focused on, uh, mostly on one particular character, uh, uh, this really lets you live in, live in this space and feel sort of comforted by it. Yeah. He has the ability to make people feel like the movie was made for them specifically, myself mm. included. Sure. Not every time, but when it hits, when you're on that wavelength, it just, it's almost a religious experience. It's just yeah. it's transcendent. Yeah, um, I agree. And I just, I'm trying to figure out how to get us to, Honeydew, just because sure. I always want to make the association, but I think the the best way to go is through texture, because the thing that he does in Punch Drunk Love, with the sort of tactile nature of everything, where you can see the fibers and and the, and feel the, I mean, you can feel the broken glass when it hits in the soundtrack. Sure. You can you can look and see the textures and surfaces, and and Honeydew does that as well, but in a more Sorry, it, it's more in conversation with 70s films, it feels like, and, yeah. and you're working from rural horror like Texas Chainsaw sure. and, and, the, and that world. But you're yeah, realizing yeah. it in kind of the same way. Yeah, it's a bit, I mean, and again, like Honeydew as a genre is, or, or as a subgenre, uh, it, it's, it's a bit pulpier. It's, um, there's a bit more treble uh, in, in every sense. Yeah. Um, both both uh uh both in terms of of audio and and um and visual there's definitely an effect that um on one hand i'm trying to draw something out of a of a genre in a in a in a in an aesthetic that has been established um and then trying in you know uh trying to make my own sort of way of it um, but yeah, it was hugely, I mean, in many ways, Honeydew was hugely influenced by Punch Drunk. Obviously, as I mentioned before, the score was a huge, probably the biggest example of that. I did send uh, a couple tracks of, of, of that to Jean Merriman, um, when we were going through and, and, and he was composing and, and, uh, and it had a huge influence on sort of where where we went and especially in the in the more tense scenes obviously most of the scenes have some element of tension but um we started off wanting to sort of lead with a a sort of bandsaw sound and a sort of cuckoo's nest um play on that melody Mm -hmm. uh and then and then filtered in a lot of the more percussive elements and we filtered in the sounds of the the piano wire sounds and the sounds of scraping and knife uh knife themed um elements and and foley and uh 
And uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's sort of, a lot of tracks are sort of an analog version of the John Brion um, scoring parts and are, are meant to sort of be uh, of the earth in a sense, or sort of start, it, start from a place of where they are in, in terms of the landscape and then build uh, as, the, as the characters interact and as the, as the story uh, carries on. And, um, and yeah, and my biggest thing for films, I mean, again, like I said, uh, since we're talking about PTA, I mean, mentioning the master and inherent vice, two films that the first time I saw them, I, I was impressed, but, uh, as I always am, but I, I was sort of stuck. Um, and then as I watched them, they became, you know, some of the, my favorite films ever. And I think a lot of that is, is, uh, is attributed to the texture, both visually and uh, in the world that he creates, even when he's adapting. You know, there's something about the control and the and the space that's that's uh, that he fills in and the way he fills it in. That you know, I, I love living in that, and that to me is the stuff that sticks with me the most. Um, or if you look at like Tarkovsky's films, there's a lot. You you can't watch a you know, uh, the Sacrifice or Stalker on any given day. You can't. It's not necessarily a rewatch that you watch every every month. Um, sure. At least not in full. But you definitely return to them, and uh, they're definitely huge inspirations. And there is this texture that he that he creates that I that I've always. Um, been fascinated by and and wanted to sort of be able to accomplish myself and um and you can definitely you know if you with that in mind i think you can you can probably pick up on that in certain scenes uh in honeydew but um but yeah and it, you know, obviously the 70s horror influences is, is undeniable in trying to affect some sort of vintage uh application um was always very present, you know, in talking with Dan, the, Dan Kennedy, the DP, and and um, and Kendra, our our uh, production designer. There's influences if you if you know that they're there, you could pick them up. But otherwise, it's probably it, is, it seems more separate than anything else. Yeah, I, I really responded to the sense too that part of the part of the hook to me is that I don't even know how to describe this without I guess I can say it without ruining it it's in the first scene the the sense that a lot of it is about America sort of not finding its way back to its original like weird Puritan uh, mythology and and formation but going about it wrong like taking the wrong mm. lessons out of the things right. we've, we've right. experienced collectively of these last few years it just feels yeah. like the like it felt like a commentary on on the the American isolationism that's been happening over the last twenty sure. years, but the embrace of fundamentalist theology and the perversion of it for for fun, the like perversion just to of come it up more with than a, anything, yeah, yeah. The yeah. the idea that you know you can as we see over and over again, people will insist on something being absolutely true when they have no idea what they're talking about and just make right. it worse. Right. Yeah. And there's definitely, I think, the foundation for that is inherent in Karen and Ulysses psyche and in their, in their, uh, upbringing. Um, and then of course 
the fact that they've been ingesting a you know this this uh, essentially this poison for as long as they have um, has has brought uh, that to an extreme level and um, and uh, and you know there's also a lot of backstory that's uh, that's not revealed that's sort of my own little private excitement um, <laughs> about developing it that uh, informs Karen's uh, obsession with with possessing people and having having a family um, uh, and and sort of using the guidelines of of uh, these religious ideals um, to sort of keep it in place and, and add some structure to it. Uh, but yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it, 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 there's elements of it that certainly common on the perversion of, um, uh, of religious texts and, uh, and how it can just be brought to a whole other level and, and, and can be applied to people who aren't necessarily religious entities like Sam and, and, and Riley, um, uh, but can sort of, uh, in many ways, inform a, a, a sense of being ill at ease that's already there um, and draw from it. Yeah. When I was trying to stitch the two together, uh, Honeydew and Punch Drunk Love, I kept thinking, right. you know, I'm just, I'm just glad that Barry never found religion because he would have been right. a monster. Like, <laughs> Alina got to him first, which I think is the most important part of his salvation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He had, and he had no, no reason to, to use his frequent flyer miles to travel to rural New England. That's better um, for everyone, really. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, I would agree. My thanks to Devereaux Milburn, whose creepy first feature, Honeydew, is now available to rent or buy on your VOD platform of choice. Thanks also to Kayla Heyer. She knows what she did. You can find Devereaux on Twitter at BlindspotStud, all one word. And you can find Punch Drunk Love on Blu-ray and DVD in a glorious special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming for free on Hoopla in both the U.S. and Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing the weekly Now Streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.